Good morning. It's good to see all of you. In 1758, a guy by the name of Carl Linnaeus, he was a Swedish, Swedish botanist, came up with a binomial system for classifying plants and animals that biologists still use today. He gave each plant and animal a genus name, followed by a species name, both in Latin. And when he got around to naming humans, what did he name us? Yes, homo sapiens. Does anybody know what that is Latin for? What does it mean? Okay, fewer know what that means. If you translate the Latin into modern English, that means human reasoners. Human reasoners. And it makes sense that we would be classified like this in the middle of the Enlightenment, when um, human reason and logic was being glorified. In fact, the... um, Enlightenment was ushered in by philosophers like Rene Descartes, who uh, said famous things like, I think, therefore I am. So to Carl Linnaeus, the most foundational basic thing about a human being is our rationality, our ability to think and reason, our intellect. But if you've heard me speak about this before, like two weeks ago on the Navigator Retreat, who was there for that? One, two, all the Bachmans. All the, Bach, the Bachmans and the Bachlings were there. Um, but if you've heard me speak on this before, you know that I think that Carl Linnaeus got it wrong. I think he misclassified us, taxonomically speaking. I believe that our, our classification should instead be homo liturgicus, human worshipers. Because what is most basic to who we are is not our rationality, our thinking, but rather it's our affections. It's what we love and we long for. We aren't primarily defined by what we think, but by what we worship. This homo liturgicus classification is much more consistent with the message of Scripture, the message of the Bible, which teaches that you and I, the pinnacle of God's creation, We're created for worship. We're created to experience God and his transcendence. And so we can't eliminate God without somehow filling that void in our souls with some kind of God substitute or idol. It's impossible for us not to worship anything. We've got to worship something. And if we eliminate God, we'll fill it with something else. That it will be readily provided by the enemy of our souls. This fact is perhaps nowhere more evident than in the first century city of Pergamum, which had God substitutes every single direction you could look, north, south, east, west. And as, as we continue our journey this morning through the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation, I invite you to take a journey with me to the first century city of Pergamum. Now, whenever I be, begin a journey, I always like to look at a map first just to get my bearings. Here's, here's a map for us that puts us, puts us in the world where, where, where this is located. It's modern-day Turkey. Asia Minor is modern-day Turkey. It's the peninsula that forms the land bridge between Asia and Europe. And if we zoom in on the west coast of Asia Minor, that's where we'll find these seven first-century cities that are, are found in chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation that was penned by the Apostle John while he was in exile where? It's on the map. Patmos. He was in exile on the island of Patmos, and he penned Revelation from that island to these seven churches. 
Now, before we go any further, I'd like to express my gratitude to a Bible teacher by the name of Brad Gray, who leads a ministry called Walking the Text. Uh, He's based here in Nashville and leads tours to these historical cities in Asia Minor. I reached out to him this week, and he's willing to share many of the graphics that I'll be showing you today with me, um, as well as some of the background material that I'll be presenting on Pergamum. He puts out fantastic content, so I'd encourage you to to check out his website, walkingthetext.com. But getting back to this map of the seven cities, if you were to start in Ephesus and work your way around, Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, in, in clockwise fashion you'll see that, that the, the, letter, or the, the order of the letters from Jesus to his church are kind of in order geographically. So likely this was a circular letter penned by John that went by messenger from city to city to city to city. They all read each other's mail, so to speak, or got to read each other's mail. But it went in clockwise fashion from Ephesus all the way over to Laodicea. Laodicea. I can't talk this morning. Levi covered Ephesians two two weeks ago. Ryan covered Smyrna last week. And today we get to take a 65-mile journey to the north, to the city of Pergamum, the most famous city in Asia at the time. Now, at the end of the first century, when John was writing Revelation, Ephesus was actually surpassing Pergamum in notoriety, in influence in the region, mainly because of its strategic location as a seaport. But Pergamum was still a big deal. Pergamum was historically the place where all the political power was held. It was still kind of the Washington, D.C. of Asia Minor, so to speak. It was the center of the political power in the region. Here's a modern-day picture of Pergamum taken from the lower city, specifically from a a road leading from the ruins of the Asclepius Temple, looking up at the Acropolis there at the top of the hill. And an Acropolis is basically the citadel where a fortified city was built. You can barely make out the ruins there in this picture on the top of the city, so let's take a quick drone flight uh, to the top of the hill where you can get a better look. Here are the ruins of the ancient Acropolis of Pergamum, which means citadel in Greek. Up on top of the mountain, sitting over a thousand feet above everything else surrounding it. Now, it looked a lot better in the first century, and I'd like to show you an, an artist's rendering of, that recreates what it would have looked like in the first century. There's a, the Acropolis of Pergamum is, was, was awe-inspiring as far as its architecture went. It was an architectural masterpiece. You should appreciate this, Jamie. Um, It featured temples and altars, even boasted the steepest amphitheater in the world with a seating capacity of about 10,000 people. Even to this day, you can stand at the bottom of that amphitheater, speak in a normal voice, and people at the top can hear you loud and clear. As we go along this morning, we'll be taking a closer look at several of the structures depicted in this short video you just saw. But for now, here's what you need to know. Pergamum is a big deal. It's the center of culture. It's where, it was where culture was created and from which culture was disseminate, disseminated to all of Asia Minor in the first century. It's your, where you'd find the home base, since it was a political center, it was where you'd find the home base of the Roman governor who was given us gladi. That's a, a Latin word that means the right of the sword or supreme jurisdiction. Can you say that with me? Usgladi. 
Okay. The power of life and death. The authority to carry out capital punishment. And as a symbol of this authority, the right of the sword, the Roman governor would carry around a sharp double-edged sword to show everybody, hey, I'm in charge here. Keep that little detail in mind because it's going to come out in the text or play a part in the text that we read together today. So if you have your Bible or the Bible app on your phone, go ahead and, and turn to Revelation chapter 2, starting with verse 12. The words are going to be up on the screen behind me. I'd invite you to go ahead and stand with me as we read together. And as we read, I want you to pretend with me, okay? Pretend to, with me that you are a citizen in Pergamum, a first century Christian citizen in Pergamum, and you're gathered to hear this letter that was just carried by messenger by foot from down in Smyrna. You're gathered to hear what Jesus has to say to you, his church in Pergamum. Okay, everybody put yourself in the sandals of a first century Pergamite. I don't know if that's what they called themselves, but we'll call them that. Here we go. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now I want you to say this out loud with me, starting in verse 13. Here we go. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who has killed among you where Satan dwells. Now time out. How are you feeling right now? How are you feeling? Jesus just told you, you've made your home where Satan lives. Satan has his throne in your city, in the city that, that your, your, your house is on, on your cul-de-sac, so to speak, where you're raising your kids. What, what emotion would you be experiencing right now? I don't know about you, but I'd be a little bit spooked, right? I'd be Googling moving companies. Okay? The very center of evil spiritual power in the world is in your city. Okay, you can sit down. We'll get back to the text here in a little bit. You know, Jesus probably would have anticipated, or he would have anticipated, this emotional response of fear when he started his message out I know where you live, where Satan dwells. And so. He prefaces that with this. These are the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Now, you might be thinking, oh, that's the Roman governor. But no, these are the words of Jesus who has the sharp two-edged sword. From the get-go, Jesus reminds us that he's really the one with usglati. He's ultimately the one with supreme jurisdiction. It's not Caesar. It's not the Roman governor who carries that sword around. It's not Satan. Jesus says, I'm ultimately the one with all authority and power. I'm the one who carries the sharp two-edged sword. And then he follows that up by saying, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne. Now, what does Jesus mean by Satan's throne? Most commentators believe that Jesus is making specific reference to a physical location there in Pergamum. And so I'd like to give you a tour of the city this morning. And we'll start with the upper left, the highest point in the city, where there was a temple built to Caesar. You know, emperor worship was common throughout the first century world, throughout the Roman Empire, but Pergamum was at the epicenter of it. 
Um, this structure that you see here is our artist rendering of a temple that was built for the worship of Trajan, who ruled from 98 to 117 AD. So this particular temple wasn't built until shortly after the book of Revelation was written near the end of the first century. But historical documents tell us that the very first temple of emperor worship was located in Pergamum. Hasn't been found archaeologically yet. Maybe it was torn down to build this, and we don't know. But the very first temple for emperor worship was built for Caesar Augustus. You might know Caesar Augustus from the Christmas story, the guy who was around when Jesus was born, who declared the decree that all the world should be taxed. Caesar Augustus was worshipped here in Pergamum. He had a special temple to worship him. Roman inscriptions from that time boast that Caesar Augustus was a divine son of God, both human and divine, who came with good news of peace and prosperity for the entire world. And one document even says, for or through the remission of sins. Not in reference to Jesus, in reference to Caesar Augustus. So here's what you need to know. Say this out loud with me. Satan doesn't create, he only counterfeits. Satan doesn't create, he only counterfeits. Are the temples related to emperor worship in Pergamum a candidate for Satan's throne? Absolutely. But that's not the only thing that's there. Let's move a little bit over on the Acropolis in Pergamum to another prominent structure, the temple of Athena. Athena is the goddess of war and wisdom. Associated with the worship complex for Athena was a 2,000-volume library, the second largest library in the ancient world, second only to Alexandria, Egypt. And if you lived in Pergamum and wanted to, be, wanted to learn and be educated, it was at your fingertips, but it came with a hook. It was intertwined with the worship of Athena. To, to be educated, you had to worship Athena, the goddess of wisdom. You know, Athena's temple is the oldest in the city. And if her name sounds familiar, it's because we have a statue of this gal right here in our very own city of Nashville in the middle of the Parthenon uh, replica in Centennial Park. I know, it looks kind of creepy if you've ever seen it. But the original 10-foot-tall idol of Athena in Pergamum was excavated from her temple there and is now on display in a museum in Berlin. But being the goddess of wisdom, it was believed that Athena offered not just knowledge, but practical knowledge on how to live. She was considered the way. She was considered the truth that showed you how to live life. Sound familiar? And so when John's gospel circulated around Asia Minor and people would read the record of Jesus saying, I am the way and the truth and the life, the citizens of Pergamum would say, oh, that's what we already have in Athena. Say this out loud with me one more time. Satan doesn't create, he only counterfeits. Could Athena's temple and library complex be a candidate for Satan's throne? Absolutely. But that's not the only thing in Pergamum. Let's move a little further over on the Acropolis to the next major structure, the altar to Zeus. Now, this isn't a temple. It's a massive altar where sacrifices are made 24-7 to the Greek god Zeus. And this is absolutely massive. It's huge. It's 117 feet wide, 110 feet deep, 40 feet tall, four stories tall. Now, how do we know these exact dimensions? Well, because the entire thing was excavated by archaeologists and put back together and now sits in a museum in Berlin. 
Zeus, is, this is a picture of the, the um, reassembled altar to Zeus in, in that museum. Zeus is at the top of the hierarchy of power in the Greek pantheon of gods. So if you're having a problem with any other deity, guess who straightens it out for you? Well, Zeus, you go make sacrifices on his altar, then life will go well if you're having trouble with Athena, if you're having trouble with Dionysus, or or trouble with Demeter, which we'll learn about here in a little bit. And the marble artwork around the base of his altar in Pergamum depicts Zeus as the conqueror, the victor, the one with all the power. He was considered king of kings, lord of lords, god of gods. He was worshipped 24-7. Smoke always rose from the altar to Zeus in Pergamum, visible for miles around. And if you lived in Pergamum, Jesus isn't lord of lords. Jesus isn't king of kings. Zeus is king of kings. Say it out loud with me. Satan doesn't create. He only counterfeits. This Zeus altar itself looks like a massive throne. So could this be what Jesus was referring to as Satan's throne? Quite possibly. But it's not the only thing in Pergamum. If you look at the front of the mountain beside the amphitheater, you'll find the temple of Dionysus. This temple was the, and the amphitheater uh, attached to it went together because Dionysus was the god of entertainment. He's the god of wine, the god of theater, basically the party god, Okay. Worship of Dionysus looked a lot like Lower Broadway on a Saturday night, except with a lot more debauchery. In Greek mythology, Dionysus was killed and resurrected back to life. So when John's gospel came to this area, quoting Jesus saying, I am the resurrection and the life, everyone in Pergamum would say, oh, no thanks. We've already got this in Dionysus, and he's a lot more fun. Because that was the language Resurrection of life was a language used around him as you partied. Say this out loud again with me. Satan doesn't create. He only counterfeits. Could Dionysus' temple be a candidate for Satan's throne in Pergamum? Yes. But it's not the only thing. Now, if we move off the right side of the mountain, which isn't depicted in, in this artistic rendering of the Acropolis, we will find the ruins to the sanctuary of Demeter. Demeter is the goddess of agriculture, the goddess of grain. And, and she's one, the one who provides for your daily sustenance, your daily necessities. She gives you your daily bread. In Latin, her name is Cirrus, which is where we get our English word cereal. If you're having a problem making ends meet, a problem with provisions, she's your gal. Go worship her. She'll take care of it. So again, when John's gospel circulated in Asia Minor, And people heard Jesus proclaim, I am the bread of life. What would the Pergamites think? Oh, no thanks. We've already got that. We worship Demeter. She gives us our daily bread. By now you know what to say with me. Satan doesn't create. He only counterfeits. Demeter's sanctuary is another candidate for Satan's throne. But we're not quite done yet. There's one more place that I'd like to take you on our tour of ancient Pergamum, and that's the temple of Asclepius. Say Asclepius with me. I like that name, Asclepius. I made quick reference to this earlier. It's not on the Acropolis, but it's instead located down in the ancient lower city of Pergamum. Asclepius was the god of medicine and of healing. 
in the ancient world. His symbol is a snake wrapped around a staff. And his staff and the snake are still used as a common symbol for medicine even to this day. Just look at the American, the American what is it, Bar Association of Medicine? American, what is it called? Need American Medical Association. I think that's what it is. It's snakes wrapped around a staff. This one isn't that symbol, but it's one that's used of medicine even today. Now, why on earth is a snake used as a symbol of healing? I hate snakes, by the way. Gus, you'd agree with me, right? What do you call them again? Satan's little hand puppets, yeah. Well, well <laughs> since snakes regularly shed their skin in what looks like a rebirth of sorts, they became a symbol in the ancient world of renewal of life, of restoration of health. I guess that kind of makes sense. I still am creeped out by them. But the temple to Asclepius is where you would go if you were sick because not only is it a temple, a place of worship, it's also the only hospital around. The priests of Asclepius are the only doctors in town. And they attributed their healing powers to who? To Asclepius. They would put people in drug-induced trances. They would put them in rooms where non-venomous, while they were passed out, they would put them in rooms where non-venomous snakes would crawl over them. No, thank you. Not signing up for that. But that's what they did. They would, then, then these patients would receive visions of, and these doctors, doctors would receive visions of the right course of treatment to take for them, for their various ailments. And if you were sick and you went to worship in that temple, you had the snakes crawl on you, and somehow you got better, guess who you attributed your healing to? Asclepius. You praised Asclepius because he was the divine healer who brought you back to health. You know, Asclepius had a nickname in the ancient world. He's called the Great Soter. The Great Soter. Soter is Greek for Savior. Asclepius was considered the divine Savior. Not Jesus. Asclepius. So when John's gospel circulates and he, you see all these miracles of him restoring people with ailments back to health, those living in Pergamum would have said, well, we, we have a Asclepius for that. This is getting repetitive, but say it out loud with me. Satan doesn't create. He only counterfeits. With the symbol of Asclepius being a snake, and Satan often referred to in Scripture as a serpent, is Asclepius' temple a candidate for Satan's throne? Yes, you bet. So which structure in Pergamum is Satan's throne? Is it Caesar's temple, Athena's temple, Zeus's altar, the Dionysus temple, Demeter's sanctuary, or Asclepius's hospital? Well, take your pick. But I'm going to go with the interpretation of the guy, the scholar I referenced earlier named Brad Gray, who believes that the entire city is Satan's throne. Why? Because every single direction you look in Pergamum, you'll find an idolatrous counterfeit substitute for Jesus. Now put yourself in the sandals of the first century Christians living in Pergamum. Here's your reality. Your faith in Jesus puts you in direct conflict with your culture. Everything you hold sacred and true about Jesus is being said and attributed to some other god or goddess. And worship of all these idols around you, all these counterfeit gods wasn't just encouraged, it was expected. 
Your culture is very superstitious, not just a little stitious, superstitious. And if something went wrong or, or was going badly, everyone in your first century culture thought the gods must be mad. We've got to appease the gods. Let's say that there's a downturn in the economy. Let's go worship. Let's go worship Demeter because our provisions are being threatened. And as they go to worship, they notice that you stay home. Or there's a sickness spreading in the city, and they notice you're not worshiping Asclepius. You're going to stand out. And who's going to get blamed for the trouble? You are, you atheist. That's what they called early Christians. They called them atheists because they weren't worshiping all those different gods. But even in the face of such persecution, some in Pergamum stood fast. They held fast. Most likely, if you weren't worshiping this pantheon of gods, the Roman governor with the double-edged sword would be showing up at your house, knocking at your door. But many did not bow down. Many did not participate in what was being expected in their culture. They weren't compromising. But Christians, here's a good way to put it. Christians in the first century weren't being persecuted for their faith in Jesus. They were being persecuted for their exclusive faith in Jesus. But Jesus commends them here and says this, yet you hold fast my name. That means to, to grip it tightly. You hold fast my name. You, do not, you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who is killed among you where Satan dwells. We don't know much about Antipas, but this guy stayed faithful to Jesus. He held fast to his name when he was being asked to worship idols, and he was killed. He was martyred. Faithful witness could also be translated faithful martyr. He held fast. He didn't compromise. And he got killed because of it. But not everyone was following in his footsteps. Some were compromising. Please stand again with me as, if you're able as we read the rest of our passage this morning. Verses 14 through 16. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicol, Nicol, I always stumble on the Nicolaitans. There it is. Hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You may be seated. You know, some Christians in Pergamum were holding fast, holding on to, for dear life to Jesus. But others were also holding to the teaches, teachings of Balaam and the Nicola, Nicolaitans. I got it right. Nicolaitans. Now, what's all this about? Well, you can read the entire story of Balaam back in Numbers, but he was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, to put a curse on Israel so they could be defeated. But Balaam couldn't curse Israel, so apparently he simply gave Balak this advice. Here's what you can do. 
If you can seduce the Israelites into worshiping false gods, if you can get them to compromise, then their own God will turn against them and defeat them. You won't have to lift a finger. And so those Christians in Pergamum who are holding to the teachings of Balaam must have been compromising in some form or fashion. They must have listened to the false teaching that went something like this. Hey, I know it's really hard to be a Christian where you live, where Satan has his throne. I know it's hard because you stand out in Satan's city. So God understands that. So it's okay to worship Jesus and worship these idols. It's okay to worship Jesus and worship Demeter. That'll make life easier for you. The Nicolaitans were teaching the very same compromise, except probably with a Gnostic bent to it, which which means they were claiming to hear special revelation from God. I've heard from God and he said this, but what they say is contrary to what God has already said. And in this context, their message was likely something like this. I've heard from God and he says that it's okay to follow Christ and worship at Athena's temple so that you don't stand out and so you don't get yourself killed like Antipas. So syncretism with culture, chameleon Christianity, compromise. God word, when God's word goes against culture, you go with culture and reinterpret God's word. Instead of Jesus only, is Jesus plus, Jesus and. And Jesus says to the Pergamum church, that's not okay. You can't worship me and worship idols. They're mutually exclusive. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. I have come that you may have life and have it more abundantly and you won't find it anywhere else. So repent. Verse 16. That's the only command given in this passage to the church in Pergamum. So repent. Turn from the idols and turn towards Jesus. Don't compromise. Don't do what culture is doing around you. Don't participate. Don't blend in. No, stand out. Be an atheist if that's what they want to call you. But worship Jesus and Jesus alone. It must be Jesus only, not Jesus plus. Now, you might be sitting here this morning thinking, boy, I'm really glad I don't live in the first century in Pergamum where Satan has his throne. But can I suggest to you that Satan is just as active in Nashville in 2022 as he was in Pergamum in 90 AD? And Satan has had almost 2,000 years to refine his strategies to be a little bit more subtle, perhaps, in his approach in our city. But he still offers counterfeit saviors in every direction that we look. We Nashvillians may not be as overt in our idolatry, but it's just as easy for us to compromise and live a Jesus-plus life. We don't have a temple in Nashville to Trajan, to the emperor, (laughs) to our president. But it's easy to put our hope in one political party or another and look in that, look for some kind of salvation of sorts if our, our person is in power. Polarized politics is the newest religion in America. We don't have Athena's temple in Nashville. We have a statue, but we don't have Athena's temple in Nashville, but we're not called the Athens of the South for nothing. 
Educational opportunity is all around us. It's at our fingertips. It's not intertwined with the worship of Athena, but it's easy to seek our primary significance through our academic achievement. We don't have an altar to Zeus in Nashville, but we consistently sacrifice our kids on the altar of capitalism. We don't have a shrine to Dionysus the party god in Nashville, but people come from all over to our city to party, to party it up here in Music City. We have Lower Broadway. We have stadiums and sports teams and movie theaters and teapack. It's so easy in our city to numb pain, to fill void in our heart just with entertainment in every direction. We don't have Demeter's sanctuary in Nashville, but it's tempting to bow down to the financial security of prosperity in our boomtown economy and look at that for our salvation. And I'm super thankful that getting medical care at Vanderbilt's hospital does not require worshiping Asclepius and letting snakes crawl over me. Thank you, Bill, for straightening them out. Um, But we can still seek our security or our significance in having good health. And it's so easy for us as modern thinkers to relegate worship of idols to bowing down to some stone statue in a pagan temple. But idolatry is much bigger and much more insidious than that. Here's a definition of of idols that I've, I've often used. An idol is anything that is functionally more important than Jesus to your happiness, identity, hope, and meaning. Say that out loud with me. An idol is anything that is functionally more important than Jesus to your happiness, identity, hope, and meaning. As we close today, I'd like to ask you, what is your Jesus plus? What is your idol? Because here, here, here's our reality. We all, like the Christians in early Pergamum, are, are tempted to live a Jesus plus type life. our reflection and response items today are simply going to be five diagnostic questions for for determining and unearthing your idol. As the worship team makes their way back to the stage, let's read through these together. First one, what do I naturally daydream about? When you're quiet and alone, thinking about the future, where does your mind wander and what do you wish would come true? Winning the lottery, retirement, graduation, you know, whatever you wish would come true, that could point to your idol, what you're looking to for significant security or satisfaction. That could be your Jesus plus. Here's another one. Where do I often overspend? Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also, which means your credit card statement is a window to your soul. Worship is your mind's attention, your heart's affection, but it's also your wallet's direction. Third question, where do I look to justify my existence? Just finish this sentence. I know I'm somebody because, fill in the blank, because I have a high-paying job, because I'm popular at school, because fill in the blank. That could be what you're looking to primarily for your worth, your value, your significance, your security, your satisfaction. That could be your Jesus plus. Fourth question, or what do I tend to have surprisingly strong emotions? You know, if we pull up our emotions You'll, we'll find our idols dangling from their roots. What do you get really angry about? What sets you off? What makes you 
super sad? What devastates you? What makes you ecstatic? If you, if you get behind that and look at your heart, that might be where you find your Jesus plus. And finally, what prayer, if unanswered, would make me seriously think about turning away from God? If you were to turn away from Jesus, if he doesn't give you what you want, that's a major clue of your idol. It's a major clue that you're not worshiping Jesus. You're simply using Jesus to get to what you really want and what you really worship, your idol, your Jesus plus. What's the plus that you need to repent of today? What's the plus that you need to turn away from where did I put the plus? Oh, on this side. You need to turn away from the plus and turn towards Jesus. What is that for you? I invite you to stand now. I'm going to pray over us. And Brett's going to lead us in a closing song. But if there's some way in which God has, has convicted your heart today of a plus, something you're holding on to in addition to Jesus, something that you're looking to for security, satisfaction, significance, as we sing, you can do this right where, you, right, right where you are and have a conversation with Jesus, but if it would be helpful to you, some of our deacons and elders are going to be down here in front, and they would love to pray with you if you'd like somebody to pray, pray with you this morning. Let me pray for us. Father, as we come to you, we want to be a repenting people, not just a confessing people, but a repenting people. Because repentance is active. It's active turning away from what we've confessed. Father, help us to turn to Jesus for life that truly is life when it's offered in so many other places, even in our culture. Satan's more subtle in his strategies today, but it's just as prevalent. People are looking for love in all the wrong places, and oftentimes we do the same as Jesus' followers. Our lives are usually not at risk because of it, which makes it all the more dangerous. And Father, that spiritual danger is real and we recognize it today. And so as your spirit convicts us of areas in our heart where we're looking at anything besides Jesus for security, significance, or satisfaction, we bring those to you and we lay that on the altar. As we sing this song, may our, the words of our mouth reflect the, the posture of our hearts, that we will not bow to an, down to idols, but will hold fast to what is true. I pray that we can sing that with sincere hearts this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.